My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Aaron Bean co-founded the company Health South and helped grow it into a Fortune 500 company. However, as CFO of the company, he took part in an accounting fraud that resulted in one of the largest corporate frauds in the history of the United States. He eventually pled guilty to his crime and was sent to federal prison. Several years after Aaron was released from prison, he began to speak publicly about the circumstances that contributed to his crime in an effort to motivate people to live a more ethical life. I hope you enjoy learning from Aaron Bean, because I always do. Aaron, it's great to chat with you again today. You've spoken to my ethics class each of the last two years, and many of the students have said that you were their favorite guest speaker they've ever had in college. So I'm grateful you're joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for that feedback. Um, I'm not sure why the students like me so much, but uh, I'm blessed. I'm happy that they find my my speech uh, at least interesting. Yeah, you do have a very interesting story and something that I think we can all learn from. Uh, as you think back on your experience as CFO of HealthSouth, I'd love for you to share your story and any simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned from that experience. Okay, I'll be more than happy, and uh, let's get started. Um, my first slide in this presentation is a picture of a uh, a young lady blowing bubbles, and I named her Ethel, um, kind of a play on ethics. And studies show and common sense would tell you that you can stay on track in terms of ethical issues, safety issues, or almost anything if you're given frequent reminders to do so. As you look over my shoulder now, you can see Ethel hangs in my uh, of what I call my office, and uh, I see her every day. And I would encourage uh, students as they begin their career to have something like an ethyl in their life that is their reminder of how important ethics is. But let's get started on my presentation. I was living in Fairhope, Alabama, and it was about time for the evening news to come on. And this was March of uh of 2003 and I turned on my TV to NBC and the announcer came on and he said we opened tonight's news with a breaking story out of Birmingham Alabama massive accounting fraud uncovered at Health South it's estimated that there's almost three billion dollars worth of bogus numbers on their books at that moment I knew probably in the not too distant future, I would be in prison. How did it all begin? I met Richard Scrushy in the summer of 1980. I was living in Houston, Texas, and I'd recently passed the CPA exam. I'd been out of college for 10 years, and now that I was a CPA, I wanted to go to work for a large company where I could work with or for other CPAs. And I answered an ad in the Houston Chronicle for a controller position at LifeMark. LifeMark was a New York Stock Exchange for-profit hospital company. And I went in for the interview and it was with Richard Scrushy. And I immediately knew I'd met a very, very unusual person. 
But during the interview, I was totally amazed with the guy. I thought he was just, I knew he was a real good salesman. He, he really seemed enthusiastic about everything. And by the end of the interview, I was convinced that that was the best job I could have in Houston, Texas. But as I was driving home from the interview, I kept thinking about the guy. And when I got home, I told my wife. And what I told her that day has since been quoted in the New York Times. I told her that I thought I'd met the most brilliant businessman I would ever meet or maybe the biggest con artist I would ever meet. Richard offered me the job. I reported to work and I just walked in the front door and sat down at my desk and Richard came in. He said, Aaron, I'm presenting a contract to my bosses, a contract I think we should sign. I'd like for you to sit in on my presentation. I said, sure, Richard. We went into his boss's office. He introduced me and he said, Aaron and I worked on this contract for hours last night. I hadn't worked on anything. Mm-hmm. Now that I've everything that's happened, and I know an awful lot about Richard Scrushy, I truly believe that he told that lie to size me up. He thinks four and five steps ahead of most people. And seeing how I would react being included in a lie told him something. I'm not a particularly assertive kind of person. I just assumed that he was telling a little white lie to make me look good first day on the job. I worked for Richard for four years at LifeMark Corporation. We were a hospital company and we managed three divisions, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, and pharmacy. Richard was a respiratory therapist and I was his financial guy. First thing you learn about Richard, if you spend more than 30 minutes with him, is that he has a very, very big ego. In fact, uh, This coming November, I'll be 80 years old, and I've never, never met a man with a bigger ego than Richard Scrushy. But I did learn a lot from him. Uh, I never worked in a large publicly held company, and he kind of taught me how to manage uh, in that type of environment. But after being there for almost four years, I came in one morning, and my Wall Street Journal was waiting for me on my desk, and the headline was, AMI and LifeMark to merge. AMI was a much larger hospital company out of California. And the article in the Wall Street Journal said that once the merger was complete, uh, the offices in Houston would be closed. I didn't like the sounds of this. I didn't know if I'd be part of the merger and I didn't think I wanted to move to California. But uh, what happens when large companies like this merge, and these were two New York stock exchange companies, Venture capitalists will come around and see if someone has a, an idea for a startup company. They met up with Richard Scrushy, uh, a fellow from Citicorp Venture Capital out of San Francisco. And uh, Richard said he wanted to start a company that would help lower healthcare costs uh, by taking things out of the hospital and doing them on an outpatient basis, things like physical therapy. He felt like this would lower healthcare costs, which was important. Even back in the early 1980s, the cost of healthcare was front page news. He convinced Citicorp to put a million dollars into a startup company to open a chain of outpatient rehab centers. Now, Richard needed a CFO. He needed a management team. He wanted me, the, the, 
his right-hand man, CFO of the new company. And I was kind of ready to get away from Richard. I learned that he told lots of white lies. His ego was oppressive. But if Richard's anything, he's a good salesman. He said, Aaron, put in $5,000. You'll get 100,000 shares in the new company. That's a nickel a share. He said, you, you have to realize Citicorp is paying a dollar a share for their million shares. So your $5,000 is already worth 100000 based on what they're paying. I knew Richard could probably build a big company, and I liked the concept. I thought a company that lowered healthcare costs made sense. So I made the decision to go with Richard in his new company. Now, Richard was from Alabama, so we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. We opened our first outpatient center. We tried to make it look like a fitness center or a spa. We did not want the patient to feel like they were uh, going back into a building full of sick people. It made more money than we thought it would. It broke even sooner than we thought it would. And I, I kind of knew early on that maybe I was on the ground floor or something pretty exciting. During that first year, I came in one morning and featured Richard had drawn this stick figure image of people pulling a wagon. And he said, look, we're not working as a team. He said, look at this wagon, you know, this drawing. He said, the two guys out front holding the handle are doing a pretty good job. But some of you are riding in the wagon. Some of you are pulling the wagon backwards or even just standing on the sidelines looking at the wagon. And he had this drawing uh, framed, enlarged and framed and hung in the lobby of every Health South facility next to a large picture of himself. In 2009, I wrote a book about Health South and my wife gave, gave me the title. She said, just call it Health South, the Wagon to Disaster. As we started opening these outpatient centers, we noticed there was a need for rehabilitation hospitals, specialty hospitals. And we found that outpatient surgery was becoming a big business. Years ago, a physician would cut on you unless you're in a hospital. But today, 60% of all surgeries are done outpatient. So as we grew Health South, we had three main businesses, outpatient rehabilitation, outpatient surgery, and rehab hospitals. Within just two years, we were talking to investment bankers about going public. And I think maybe one of the most important meetings uh, that ever took place in the history of the company was with a couple of bankers from a firm out of New York City called Drexel Burnham, an investment banking firm. Uh, they came to Birmingham to talk to Richard and I about going public, and they spent the entire day with us. And at the end of the day, the banker said, man, your facility looks great. Your employees are sharp. Uh, your business plan is sound. He said, but you're still losing money. You're what we call a startup company. And he says, nobody's public doing essentially what you do. And he said, we really can't register your stock for you and try to get you public while you're still losing money. You've got to prove that you can make a bottom line profit in this business. You tell me your centers lose a little money when you first open them, and this is not unusual. He said, but I'm, I'm curious, you're opening a lot of centers. How are you accounting for those startup losses? And I very proudly said, well, we're being conservative and we're expensing our startup losses. He literally screamed, no, no, no. Capitalize those costs. 
put them on the balance sheet, write them off over several years. And he's saying, I think you're going to make a profit much sooner than you're projecting, and we'll take you public. Richard just kind of went crazy. Aaron, Aaron, why are you letting the accounting tell wag the dog? I'm out here killing myself trying to get this company public, and your silly accounting is hurting the company. So I redid our numbers. I ran it by our auditors. They said it was okay, but they warned me. They said, don't. Uh, don't abuse this. This is easily abused, but it's it's okay accounting if you do it properly. Of course, we abuse the hell out of it. So starting day one, HealthSouth was probably being very aggressive with their accounting, and we were putting things on our balance sheet that probably should have stayed on the P&L. But shortly after making the accounting change, uh, we were showing a profit, and we registered to go public. We registered to sell 2 million shares tentatively priced at 8 to $10 a share. Richard made all the presentations on the roadshow. He got standing ovations. And in the final roadshow in New York City, an investor was shaking his head. And he, he turned to me and he said, I've never seen anything like this. He said, investors don't normally applaud on roadshows. And he said, all my years on Wall Street, I've never seen anybody get a standing ovation. But he said, uh, you're, and the strange thing is, he said, your, your company's not even three years old. Your audited top line is only $5 million. You and Richard have no track record that you can run a public company. But he said, you're going to get the deal done because Richard Scrushy is the best salesman I've ever heard on a roadshow. We did get the deal done, not at 8 to $10, but $6.50 a share. The good news is, as soon as the stock started trading, it started moving up. And within a few months, it was well over $20 a share. You can do the arithmetic. I'm now a millionaire. I had my 100,000 shares. I'd also gotten 50,000 in options at $1 a share during those two startup years. It changed me a little bit. Uh, when I started the company, I probably didn't have a net worth of $25,000. I was paycheck to paycheck like most people. Now I had a liquid stock worth several million dollars. As soon as I was out of the lockup period, I sold a little stock and I went out and paid cash for a new Mercedes. That was fun. I'd never paid cash for a car before. I'd never driven a Mercedes before. As the stock kept going up and up, uh, my wife and I, uh, built about a 7,000 square foot home in Birmingham. We bought a condo in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Uh, every year, uh, I bought a new Porsche or BMW or whatever. We have three beach houses in Florida. And I noticed as I traveled to New York quite often that the investment bankers wore these uh, Hermes silk ties. They're beautiful ties. And I bought $30,000 worth of them. So life was good. I was living the good life. Now, for Richard Scrushy, uh, going public and now and he had millions of stock options and outright, I think he got 5 million, not 5 million, but I, I think it was 2 million shares when he started the company up. And he, I never did know it, but he wanted to be a rock and roll star. So he formed a band called Proxy. He began playing at nightclubs and 
company events and what have you. And the band didn't take off like he thought it should. So he thought, problem was he wasn't a very good singer. So he had the theory that he could be a country star. So he went to Nashville. He bought himself a black cowboy hat. He hired, hired people from Sawyer Brown and the Oak Ridge Boys. He produced an album and he wrote a song called Honk If You Love to Honky Tonk. And he sent out memos nationwide to all of our employees, telling them to call their radio station and have them play Honk If You Love to Honky Tonk. But he also started always carrying a gun in his briefcase. And as the years went by, he hired bodyguards that followed him everywhere. And he was very much, I mean, almost like a Hannibal Lecter. He had this huge ego. He had all these bodyguards now and all this money. And it was very kind of scary in a way. Now that we were public, six other companies went public doing essentially the same thing we did. Uh, that really had not been a public company, a pure play doing what we did. Now there were six of them. And we began acquiring those companies. We would do stock transactions where we would trade our stock for their stock because our stock always traded at a higher value. So in the early 90s, we started doing acquisitions that totaled a billion dollars or more. So it was unbelievable. Let me give you the entire timeline. We start the company in 84. We go public in 86. By 1995, we're the largest company in the state of Alabama. We're operating in all 50 states. We have over 40,000 employees. We own more rehab hospitals, more surgery centers, and more outpatient centers than any other company in the United States. And we're 350th on the Fortune 500 list. I'm a rock star in Birmingham. I can, my wife and I go out to dinner. People would recognize me and want to come up and meet me. It was unbelievable. The company started taking on some of Richard's big personality. We started buying jet airplanes, by which he learned to fly. By 1995, we owned 12 jets, two Gulf Streams, which are just unbelievable. You might say, wow, what a success story. What could go wrong? One word, really, it's greed. Now, if you really study, or if you ask somebody on the street, why do people commit financial fraud? Why do they do this? Um, and they're going to say, well, they're greedy. They cheat so they can get rich. And in many cases, this is that simple. But you will learn as you study ethics that you can become involved in unethical behavior and it not put money directly into your pocket. But in the case of Hell South, greed was at the center of it. And at the center of that greed was Richard Scrooge. In 1995, he told the media on television, in the newspapers, that it was his goal to be a billionaire. He said, I want to be the richest man in the state of Alabama. So um, he totally controlled his board of directors. Uh, he paid them good salaries. They had stock options. They flew around in our airplanes. And they would give him anything he asked for. And he asked for millions of stock options every year. He then started meeting with the stock analysts that followed our stock every year. And he would ask, what do we need to earn next year for you to keep a strong buy on our stock? And they would tell him. And he would always say, we can do that, not a problem. 
it didn't matter what our estimates really indicated we were going to do. He simply promised the street earnings that would keep the stock price going up. And with his millions of stock options, he was worth uh, already, uh, stock he actually owned, about 700, $600, 700000000 million. In 1997, he was the highest paid executive, one of the highest paid executives in the United States. He took home $110 million in that one year. I just saw in the news last night that Nick Saban, the coach at Alabama, uh, is paid $10 million a year. Well, Richard took home $110 million in one year. So it was quite the deal. So uh, it became difficult over time to hit the earnings that Richard was promising. Uh, he had told me to do whatever you can to make the bottom line look good. That's your job. And I was able to do for the first four or five years, I was able to do enough aggressive accounting, which is what I told the FBI I was doing to hit the numbers. But by 1996, it was becoming very difficult. Stock analysts were starting to see that our cash flow didn't match our earnings, our days in AR were growing. And I met at the second quarter of 96, we had missed the numbers pretty badly. And my chief accountant and I, Bill Owens, met and we decided we couldn't do any more accounting tricks. We had to report numbers below the street. So we prepared ourselves to go into Richard's office and tell him the news. And I knew it was going to be about as much fun as telling him that he couldn't sing. <laughs> but we went into his office. We laid it out. His first, his face turned red. His eyes got real dark. He started trembling. Get out of my office. Have you guys lost your minds? We are not going to report numbers below the street. If we do, the stock will crash. We'll be sued. Your stock options will be worthless. You won't be the rock stars in Birmingham anymore. He said, here's the problem. You guys have gotten lazy. You know how to fix the numbers. You've done it before. You're smart. Get back into your office and get these numbers where they need to be. And he literally would not let us leave. He kept cursing at us and telling us to fix the numbers. Finally, Bill Owens, my chief accountant, who had worked for the auditors, said, look, we have 1,500 operating units, 1,500 sets of books, 1,500 general ledgers. He said, I can make entries small enough, and I will make hundreds of them, and I'll spread them through the ledgers, and the auditors won't look at these entries because I'll keep them small enough. It just won't trip uh, their, their threshold to examine. And then he said, Aaron, Richard, I'll be crediting revenue we never generated, and on the balance sheet, I'll be debiting assets we do not have. Richard thought about it for a moment. And he said, guys, this is our best option. Now, we'll only do it one time to get through this thin spot. And you guys know everybody does this kind of thing. At this point, I should have had the courage to stand up to Richard and say no. I was the chief financial officer. I was on the board of directors. And if anyone was responsible for the numbers being correct, it was my job. And I did not have the courage 
to stand up to Richard and say no. And I let Bill Owens cook the books that night. The next day when I went into work, I felt like I had blood on my hands. I, I, was, I felt like people were staring at me. I didn't really appreciate what it would do to me to be involved in something this egregious. It was terrible. We did it again the next quarter, even though Richard said we wouldn't. Uh, 1996 ended. The auditors did not detect the fraud. Bill and I pled with Richard, tell Wall Street we're going to have a down year. We're not going to lose money. We're just not going to make as much money as we've been making. He would not do it. He promised the street another good year of earnings growth that I knew we could not achieve. In the first quarter of 97, of course, we had missed the numbers and um, we cooked the books again. By this time, I think six people were involved in the fraud. And at the end of the meeting, Richard made eye contact with every one of us. And he said, guys, if we're ever caught, I'm going to deny everything. He said, I don't know what your game plan is, but I will deny everything. So uh, I was upset. Uh, I didn't enjoy going to work anymore. And in the summer of 97, I just left the company. I told Richard I'd made enough money. I told my wife what was going on. And we agreed my best option was just to leave the country. I moved to South Alabama and bought 25 acres of land. And I had a very nice house. I even built a football field in my backyard, uh, LSU football field, of course. And um, things were okay. But after being there, being gone for about a year, I got a phone call from Richard. And he said, come to Birmingham, have lunch with you. He said, I want to talk to you. So I did, and he asked me to come back to work. He said, we're making their numbers fine now, and he wanted me back on the team, and I told him no, and I drove back home. 1998 passed, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, but in 2003, in March, I heard that TV announcer say massive accounting fraud at HealthSouth. I might have just sort of passed out. Uh, I, I could not believe that the fraud had gone on for that long and had grown to be in the billion-dollar range. When I left the company, it was just a few million, but it was now in the millions. I expected my doorbell to ring any time, and it would be the FBI coming to put me in handcuffs and take me away. So I started calling around, and I wound up hiring a criminal attorney in Mobile, and when I met with him, the first thing he said was, do not lie to me. Do not lie to the federal government. He said, your former employees have told them that you were involved. The FBI has seized the HealthSouth building. If you try to lie your way out of this, you're going to go to prison for a very long time. By now, my wife was in tears and I was pretty upset. And I uh, just beside myself it was terrible the meeting was about to end i asked me if he needed a check for a retainer he says yes and he said make the check for a hundred thousand dollars and i said wow can can i get a t-shirt or something and he gave me a coffee mug 
<laughs> a few days later, I was in a federal building in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm talking to two FBI agents, two agents from the SEC, a whole room full of attorneys, and I am a scared puppy. I pled guilty, and um, the lead FBI agent said that 17 people had come forward and pled guilty, and only one key person denies knowing anything about the fraud, Richard Scrooge. And he said, we will have to take Mr. Scrooge to trial, and we will want you to be a witness. So uh, they wanted me to be the first witness because they thought I was very professor-like, and I could explain to the jurors uh, all the terms that they had to understand. Um, and this was in a financial crime, an accounting crime. They had to at least have some understanding of how the crime took place. They put me on the stand and I'm making eye contact with the jurors and they're just bored out of their minds. <laughs> that night on television, one of Richard's attorneys, he had seven attorneys. One of his attorneys said, uh, we're not going to take that approach. We're just going to make it fun for these people. He said, you need to follow this trial. It's going to be fun. So sure enough, he got me on the stand the next day and he got in my face and almost immediately said, Mr. Bean, you've had an extramarital affair, haven't you? And I said, yes, I was under oath. I was not going to lie. The next day, my wife wanted to come into the courtroom holding a sign saying she loved me and uh, we will celebrate our 53rd wedding anniversary this June. And I've since learned that this turkey has been married four times, but I digress. <laughs> he then said, Mr. Beam, did Mr. Scrooge ask you to commit fraud? And I said, yes, he did. He told me to cook the books. No, Mr. Beam, did he ask you to commit fraud? Did he use the word fraud? And I said, no. And he said, aha. The definition of an accountant is that they fix numbers. You are the one that decided to commit fraud. Mr. Scrooge never asked you to commit fraud. And I looked over at the jurors and they were nodding their heads up and down. The trial lasted six months. Richard had um, began preaching on television before the trial started. He'd given a, a church a million dollars and all. And, uh, when the verdict came in, not guilty, all charges. The legal community could hardly believe it. The federal government seldom loses a case like this. Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, Martha Stewart, they all went to prison, but not Richard Scushi. Within a week or so, he flew to Houston to advise Ken Lay on how to conduct the Enron trial. I actually pled guilty to bank fraud because the statute of limitations had run on, uh, on securities fraud, but the statute of limitations on bank fraud was 10 years, and I had signed documents that were given to our bank, so technically I'd committed bank fraud, and that's what I pled guilty to. I had to auction off my home uh, to pay up restitution. Uh, I'd really... Uh, I had paid millions of dollars in fines and restitution. And um, I only lucky thing is I only had to spend three months in a federal prison. But when I got out of prison, I'm now a felon. I am. Uh, I needed a job. So I started mowing lawns for a living. And uh, it was 
pretty tough on me mowing lawns. I was in my 60s and I'm mowing lawns. But I actually began my speaking career two years after getting out of uh, prison. And today I've spoken to over 100 different universities, lots of associations, large businesses. I've actually spoken at Microsoft's corporate headquarters, Home Depot. And uh, I speak at the University of Kansas and Penn State and schools like that every year. I do it because this is the cover of Time Magazine in 2009, Why Main Street Hates Wall Street. When there's a high level of trust in business and in everything we do, things work pretty well. But when you lose that trust, things go south pretty quickly. Enron was voted as the best company in the United States two years in a row by Fortune Magazine. Let me repeat that. The best company in the United States, Enron. And we all know what happened to Enron. Their auditors had to disband because they had certified their statements. And the public is very much disappointed in Wall Street and have lost lots of confidence. And that's an important thing. Trust is at the center of all ethical behavior. You need to be ethical to build trust. In 2015, I wrote a second book called Ethics Playbook. And in this book, I attempt to explain how these large frauds happen. I had been telling the health South story for a couple of years, and but people during Q&A would ask me, how do these frauds start? How can they go on that long? And this diagram here, uh, I, I have a big red circle at the center of it, uh, is the corporate uh, leader. Um, and when you analyze these people, the Jeff Skellings, the Burning Eppers, the Richard Scrooge's, they have big egos, they have big personalities. They're thought of as good leaders because they can charm people or intimidate people into getting what they want. But they have one thing in common for sure. They totally measure success by how much money they can accumulate. They do not let ethics interfere with them making money. Now, they don't physically cook the books. They have enablers, typically the CFO. Why does the CFO do it? Part of it was, it was greed. I, I have to admit that it, it was fun being rich, and that's part of why I let myself believe that I was Richard talking me into cooking the books. But uh, a lot of studies have been made about the relationship between CFO and CEO, and many times a CEO, a strong one with a domineering personality, can impact how the CFO does his job. Now, I'm explaining all this because you can't have an Enron or HealthSouth with just one person pulling off a big fraud. You have to have lots of people not doing their jobs. Now, there are fiduciaries that should prevent these things from happening. Outside board of directors, outside auditors, the SEC, accounting firms, law firms. Why don't they do their job? Lots of reasons, but in ethics, we talk about conflicts of interest. Who actually compensates these people? In most cases, they're compensated by the company. Mm -hmm. And that's a basic conflict of interest. And that it plays a role in why these people don't do their job. Rank and file employees become um, involved over time. 
they do it because they don't want to lose their job and they rationalize that, um, you know, everything's got to be all right. The company's asking me to do these things. But again, I'm emphasizing that you've got to understand that lots of people have to not do their job for an Enron or HealthSouth to happen. In 400 AD, St. Augustine said, complete abstinence easier than perfect moderation. What is he saying? He says that you should strive to be perfect, to live a very perfect life. Uh, in church this past Sunday, and Jesus said, be perfect. Now, we can't always be perfect, but when you set your ethical standard below perfect, and you rationalize that a little bit of cheating, a moderate amount of cheating is okay. You're already on what they call the slippery slope. In 1806, Webster's Dictionary defines success as being generous, prosperous, healthy, and kind. Today, look it up. Webster's defines success as the attainment of wealth, fame, and rank. We need to go back to the 1806 definition of success. A wise old man was talking to a boy one day. He said, there are two wolves always fighting inside of me. One is filled with hate and anger and jealousy and he lies. The other wolf is filled with love and truth and he tells the truth. This battle rages inside of you and all men. The little boy thought for a minute. He said, which wolf will win? And the old man said, the one you feed. I think this is an exact quote that you need to understand to build ethical strength. You have to feed the good wolf. When I look back at what happened to me, I did not have the courage or the strength to practice ethical behavior every day. I wasn't that bad, but I wasn't as good as I could have been. And the way you build ethical strength is to practice it. It's like a tennis player hitting a ball thousands and hundreds of thousands of times until he develops muscle memory and he can do it almost instinctively. At this point, uh, Nate, do you have any questions or you, uh, you want me to make some comments about this? Seems yeah. like the 30 minutes has gone by pretty fast. So. No, this, this is great, Aaron. And, and I just appreciate you sharing uh, this story and the lessons you've learned. And uh, I, I'm certain that at this point, people are wondering what happened to Richard Scrushy. <laughs> well, interestingly, um, while he was still at HealthSouth, before the HealthSouth fraud broke, he had been indicted for bribing the governor of Alabama. The governor was running for re-election, and HealthSouth gave him a campaign contribution of $500,000. When he got elected, he appointed Richard Scrushy to a board that approved the building of hospitals in the state of Alabama. And he approved, the board approved uh, a building, HealthSouth building a hospital in Birmingham. The federal government said this was a bribe. The legal community just caught a laugh, they said, seldom ever is a political contribution considered a bribe. But they took, he and the governor to trial and uh, Richard was found guilty. And he actually spent five years in federal prison. He also uh, was 
sued civilly, and the judge awarded in a civil trial that he had to pay $2.8 billion in restitution. And uh, while he was in prison, they did seize his assets. Richard said they got all of his wealth. But today he has a website. It's called richardscrucci.com. Uh, he has written a book called When Building a Billion-Dollar Company. Here are a few things to think about. So uh, obviously Richard and I don't speak. Uh, <laughs> I'm in essence saying he's a liar and he's saying I'm a liar. And there's just no common ground there. Aaron, one of the, the moments that always jumps out to me is this moment when you're included in the lie, when Richard says, you know, Aaron and I have been up all night working on this contract. <laughs> if, if you could go back in time, how would you handle that moment? Would you call Aaron out, or excuse me, would you call Richard out in the moment? Would you wait until after the meeting? I mean, knowing what you know now, how would you handle that? Well, I, I would not call him out in the meeting, but immediately after the meeting, I would tell him that I don't want to be included in lies. I mean, you know, I just, I don't want that. That's not the way I want to advance in the company or anything else. And today I think about it and I just think if I went and got hired somewhere today and my boss included me in a lie, I, I just wouldn't stand for it. You know, and but at the time, I just I was naive. I just thought he was I was, thought it was kind of cute. He told a little white lie to make me look good. Mm. He's looking out for me. <laughs> but uh, you, you've got to stand up for you got to have some principles and you got to stand up for them. And being lying to your new boss is not something you should do. Yeah, I think it's easy for us to underestimate just how good some of these uh, clever liars can be. And, you know, him including you in a lie makes you feel like he's doing you a favor. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. He, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, today I, I see it very differently. I, I just, I realize I've studied a lot about the Richard Scrushy type personality and i realize that uh you've got to be very careful when you're dealing with a man with a very big ego that wants to be a billionaire uh that he might go to almost any ends to achieve his goal of becoming rich yeah and that's the thing you mentioned you know richard was already worth 600 to 700 yeah, million yeah. and yeah. you know he, he wanted you know, some people, like you say, they measure success by how much money they make and, and being able to say they're worth a billion can become more important to them than, you know, what, yeah. what, what quality of life difference are you going to have from going from 700 million to a billion? <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. nothing other than kind of the ego or the pride and being able to say you did that. And I think it, it goes back to the importance of how we define success. Yeah. And, you know, Richard was starting to mingle with other CEOs that were making huge salaries and uh, we were a fortune 500 company. So he was, he felt like he was competing and to really be successful. He needed to be as rich as he could possibly be. And he thought like that. So. Yeah. Uh, another interesting point is, is, you know, there's that saying, you're the five people that, you know, you're the sum of the five people you hang around the most. And uh, if you know, the, the, 
fastest way to become rich is to hang out with poor people, but fastest way to become poor <laughs> is to hang out with rich people, right? Uh, well, Aaron, I, you know, I, I just really appreciate your time. Is there any kind of last uh, thought or anything else you'd, you'd like to share just as we wrap up here? Well, I just want to reiterate that um, being ethical is a learned behavior. When I first started speaking, I would tell people, well, I'm teaching ethics now. And people would say, well, that's silly. You can't teach people ethics. They're either ethical or they're not. That's just not true. We learn to be unethical. We learn to be ethical. And you can choose. You can decide to um, uh which wolf to feed and yeah. you have to feed the good wolf. You have to work at it. And it, it is difficult. It takes courage to stand up and always try to do the correct ethical thing. You need to analyze every business transaction in that before you implement a new compensation program, like at uh, Wells Fargo. You have to think about the ethical implications of what you're putting in place. So that that's that's my main thing is that you you have to work at being ethical. And it takes a concerted actual commitment to be an ethical person. Well, I hope you're right that we can learn ethics because otherwise I am completely wasting my time <laughs> as, as I teach business <laughs> ethics. And and one of the things that we talk about early is uh, you know, some of our perceptions, you walk into a room and, and you can see a chair and, and you perceive that without even thinking about it. Many times we, we run into an ethical dilemma and we may not even be aware that there's an ethical dilemma. So we talk about how one of the first steps is awareness. And then mm -hmm. what, you know, the the word that you've talked about over and again is is courage. And so I just, I appreciate you sharing your story. It's impacted me. It's motivated me to strive to always live ethically, to set my standard at 100%, have the courage to choose what is right. So I just really appreciate your time and just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today. Okay, thank you. And if you ever want to have me back uh, with a follow-up podcast, uh, I'd be happy to do it. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Listening to Aaron Beam share his story motivates me to keep my ethical standard at perfect. And I love the lessons Aaron shared. First, frequent ethical reminders can help us behave more ethically. Aaron uses the picture of Ethel to remind him to make ethical decisions, and I hope my students and children will incorporate symbols and mementos into their daily lives to help them live up to their ethics. Second, if someone ever includes you in a lie, even if it's designed to make you feel better, please have the courage to call them out on it. Richard was likely sizing Aaron up when he included him in that first lie, and had Aaron had the courage to call out Richard early on, Aaron might never have been part of the fraud. And finally, we should carefully consider what our own definition of success is. We are so often and easily influenced by the people we associate with, and if we haven't carefully determined how we're going to measure our own success, we may default into definitions that lead us to sacrifice our ethics. Aaron never expected to become a convicted felon, but because of the people he was surrounded by and the pressures he gave into, he eventually found himself in prison. In the words of St. Augustine, complete abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. If we set our ethical standard below perfect, we're already on the slippery slope. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously.
Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thank you for all of your support.